Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Every last Friday night of the month, inside the conservatory, a coffee house in the rusty brick house littered neighborhood of Georgetown in Seattle, a variety show focusing on the darker side of performance art unfurls itself. La Petite Mort's anthology of erotic esoterica is a dark, intimate cabaret, bringing us burlesque, boylesque, magic, contortionists, acrobats, and more. All of this framed by the black-blooded and sneaky musical performances of Kevin Incroyable and his collaborators. Sitting here with me today, we have La Petite Mort, the creator and curator of this series, and its featured performer. And we have Kevin Incroyable, its master of ceremonies and member of the band The Peculiar Pretzelman. To set the stage, this is how the pair have been described, and I quote, Miss La Petite Mort has been evoking bloody, evil, erotic incantation for years, and now with Incroyable's sorcerous, sinister sonority, they mine the deepest trenches of human depravity drizzled with crooked, rusty nails of romance. It's torch singing for arsonists, and a terribly good excuse to have a strong drink. On that note, welcome, you two. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You know, a, a common theme that I've noticed as I've talked to a few folks on this podcast, it is really rare that people knew what they were going to do with their lives with absolute clarity and certainty. How did the twists and turns in your life lead you to this passion for dark cabaret, performance art, and as you put it once, purveying avant-garde nudity? We're in it for the money. Just kidding. <laughs> Well, it seems like our paths seem to want to cross for many years. And then it just kind of happened. And one day we were at the same show and there were sparks, there were fireworks. It just kind of worked out. Our aesthetics were very similar. We we're really into the same thing. And uh, from there, it just kind of it feels like it exploded. Everything made sense. And then uh, he was doing music. I was doing shows. I was producing. But when we got together, it was it took a minute to get our cadence and to get our stride, but we did eventually. And I feel like we've really hit what we want to with the anthology. We had another run, Morbid Curiosities, before that. And uh, it was kind of, it was eclectic and it was all over the place and we weren't sure what we wanted to do. Uh, we had cabarets, we had immersive theater, we had funny shows. One would be like a 50s monster movie burlesque show and then the next would be like an immersive you know, cafe thing. So it built to the anthology and what it is today. So you had separate paths that intersected. What were you doing before you met? I got I got all lost in your story. <laughs> I forgot. It's your yeah. story too. Come Unless on. Really you pushing. knew with absolute directness when you were four that this is what you were going to be. I think that as a child, I always was uh, very enamored of and enthusiastic about storytelling. I come from a long line of uh, good proper drunken Irish Catholic families. And so storytelling was constantly in the air. You couldn't try to exist in a room where five conversations are going on at the same time unless you had a captivating narrative of some sort, whether it was about, you know, how you found the shoes that were on your feet or whether it was about how you didn't get arrested yesterday. I think Music was what was always happening. It was always there. I learned how to play piano when I was little to spite my sister because she was taking lessons and she was older than me. I taught myself how to play to make her feel bad because that's what you do to yeah. your siblings. I was always playing music and then I was playing guitar and then the whole time I was thinking about wanting to 
do comic books or I wanted to make movies or whatever. But at the end of the day, I was always playing music. It never stopped, you know. And even when I was applying to go to art school to study cinema, I was running a little record label in Philadelphia with some friends of mine. I was in my early 20s when a friend of mine just sort of kicked some sense into me and said, why don't you just really focus your attention on music because it's what you do most of the day anyway. And that prompted me to get going with Peculiar Pretzelman, which became a touring band, which is how I met Angela. Because we would come through Seattle pretty regularly from the very first tour we did as the Pretzelman in 2006, you know, all the way up till I moved up here in 2013. I guess I sort of knew, sort of didn't. And then that carries well into the story that she was telling about how First of all, it carries directly into it because that's how we met. And also <laughs> wrestling with stuff like knowing we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to accomplish, punching our way through it, you know, like going hard left and going hard right. And then eventually realizing being able to acknowledge when we hit a good resonant frequency and, and lean into it really hard. And that's gotten us to the anthology. One of the problems is there's not really a venue or a space or a show for me to perform in because I'm so... <laughs> different um my aesthetic is dark and sometimes people like it sometimes they don't uh so part of the anthology is giving us each a space that fits our performance and our aesthetic and what we want to do and our agenda mm-hmm. that is how the pretzelman got entangled with the cabaret scene the people that wanted us the most and were able to put us in front of an audience that would be really receptive and appreciative of the kind of stuff we were trying to do. It was often these cabaret shows, and so we became well-known in those circles, which, again, is how we ended up meeting. We were playing at the Cabaret Macabre. Yep. And for folks who are not familiar with the kind of music you do, and, and maybe you'll hate this question because the <laughs> act of description will just cause a, <laughs> a reductive act to occur, but what is it about your music and the cabaret act that intersect it? I mean, I've seen it described as, as you know, crazy voodoo, um, I think punk. I think at the time that it that we were getting our getting off the ground, the band is primarily me um, playing a variety of stringed instruments and some percussion, and then uh, my buddy Deacon, who plays all kinds of crazy percussion stuff. And we've changed some of the other lineup up until recently when we just got rid of everybody else, and now it's just the two of us. He and I are real interested in pre World War One. Music is really what that is talking about. We really liked some folk and very old blues and very old country. And if you spend a lot of your life listening to as much music as you can find and learning how to play as much music as you can find, at least part of your brain is going to become very sensitive to, if not extremely focused on the roots of where that music comes from. And as Americans and as people that are so inspired by and motivated by uniquely American forms like the blues and jazz, you're going to need to get to the source. You're going to have to go to the root and, and drink from that, from that supply. And we got really, we went deep into it. And he and I played as a rhythm section in a bunch of bands in Los Angeles for a while. And so we were playing lots of different kinds of music and that made it even more necessary and relevant for us to, to just dive as deep as we could. And in doing that, we were playing a music that was extremely cooperative or just very complimentary to what was going on in this sort of like neo vaudeville scene mm-hmm. that was springing up all over the place in the, you know, mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. 
So let's shift a little bit and tell us a bit about the anthology of erotica esoterica. How did the idea for it take root in your minds, and what was the pathway on the way to making it a reality? I remember we were uh, <laughs> doing a Halloween show at the conservatory, and we had done one other show there before, and it was very artsy, and we wanted it to be kind of highbrow and immersive. And it was during a time when the economy wasn't doing stellar. So attendance wasn't great, but it was probably one of the better shows we've done, don't you think? It was one of our best shows. The Halloween show at the conservatory? No, the the first show we did at the conservatory, it was the um, Catastrophe Cabaret. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I think that was one of our best I shows. I forgot. Yeah. I forgot that was there, sort but of. nobody else was doing shows there yet, and we kept hounding them. I kept hounding them and, and asking to let us do shows there. So The how, space is amazing. It's beautiful. It's super. It's just got so much personality. And we walked and in there. very complimentary to us. Yeah, and we walked in there the first time, and we were like, this this is made for us. It's perfect. So I hounded them, and they let us do a Halloween show. And we are standing there during the Halloween show, and I was watching it. And I booked a lot of the same performers as that um, Catastrophe Cabaret show. And so it was really on par with kind of a dream lineup that I'd had and like a perfect aesthetic and it was Halloween and I looked over at Carlos and I said hey we should do a monthly here and he was like okay all right and he still was not having shows there they were I don't even think they were open yet as a coffee shop were they but at the time that we did the Halloween show yeah yes they were okay because we'd been doing the inner zone show they were not they were still just mainly like an art space where they would do uh yeah, yeah, photo like, shoots, figurative drawing, yes. that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. but not very open to the public. So I remember standing there and looking at the stage going, we should do a monthly here. And he's like, yeah, all right. So then Kevin and I talked about it to figure out. And we thought long and hard. And it took us, um, I'd say, three months before we really figured out what we wanted to do. It was, there was a lot of conversations that went on about it. And some were from before because we'd been talking about the idea of trying to do something more regular. Yeah. Something more specific. And something also... Because we'd gotten kind of away from the more traditional cabaret that you wanted, you wanted to return to that, but but have it be as stylistically distinct as as the other shows, but still be a pretty straightforward cabaret show. Yeah. Let's unpack that a little because that's what strikes me about you know when people visualize cabaret in their mind, they have a very specific genre expectation. But what you're presenting is within the cabaret genre, but it has certain twists and turns that are different yeah well i think one of the aspects that kevin and i like to do with shows is to give it kind of a timeless feel but like a like an unknown time kind of like a julie tamor titus thing going on where where all the different time periods are blending together i like it to kind of feel old timey but i love the venue because the venue really helps it feel timeless and old and classic and and all that and one of the reasons i like that venue and i like the concept is because it's kind of got like the 1800s vibe going on i think that's what they're shooting for there was a lot of unknowns back then and so people had a lot of beliefs uh you know they believed in witches and vampires and stuff like that and so when you have a setting like the conservatory that feels kind of timeless and and old and ancient it helps people with their suspension of disbelief so you can kind of get away with more. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why that show is so successful there. It is. It's small. There's a backdrop of, geez, 100-year-old, if not more, red bricks that have a certain mm -hmm. glow. They're burnished. There's a, Gorgeous. a stage that is not completely separated from the audience. It's very close to them with Edison lights at the foot of the stage. So it really does cloister you in into the space when when the performance is going on yeah yeah and it does make witchcraft seem a little bit more believable and 
and all that. Yeah. And you know, dark and macabre are concepts associated with your own performances, and your own site has that wonderful juxtaposition of glitter and gore. Yeah. So what do you consider the appeal of this type of aesthetic to be? I think as far as the show goes, nobody else around here is doing it. There's a lot of burlesque shows, a ton of burlesque shows. And then the circus folks kind of stick together and the sideshow folks kind of stick together also. Uh, so this kind of shoves them all together. The talent is high end. They're really, you know, good performers and no one else is doing it. So mm. I think that, that that's kind of and how do you design, curate, and stage the event to generate its atmosphere? I mean, what features do you look for when you're trying to design each event? What are the, I'm not going to suggest you have a checklist, but you have a feel for a certain kind of property or feature that a performer will have. Yeah. All those, all that, the long series of conversations that went into jumping from putting together a couple of very large scale shows in the year and jumping to a smaller space, a more intimate show that would be presented monthly. Um, many, many, many conversations, lots and lots of talking about it. All of that provided us with a real easy shorthand and a, some, some muscle memory about how to, how to go about picking the kind of people that we want to work with and how to uh, slide them into the right show for that person. Once you get moving, you know, it's like when you're on a long walk, if you just put one foot in front of the other, you stop thinking about it and it just gets easier and you just go, 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 go. And so it's gotten to the point where now people are coming to us that are natural fits for us. We have had people come in from Iceland, mm -hmm. Brazil. Lots of Portland. Lot, well, <laughs> Lots of Portland. Yes. And yeah. a lot of L.A. recently, too. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Florida. Portland is very cool. Shh. Oh, well, I'm going to ask you about region, why this region is particularly uh, well acquainted with this art form in a second. But I'm going to press you. Oh, good. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is, is be analytic, and you're going to have to react to it. And you probably don't want necessarily to be analytic because you think it's like explaining the joke away. But what strikes me when I see the performances, for instance, I think of an act such as Two of Wands, who are two women who who do a lot of body control. You could call it contortionist. You can call it tremendous acrobatics. But it's very dramatic. There's a dark aesthetic to it. There's even a narrative that's going on that's almost dreamlike or poetic as they're doing their movements. It's not just movement and contortion for the sake of showing amazing feats of physical act. There's a certain narrative associated with it. Um, the songs you play, as you said, goes back to early 20th century, if not earlier, you know, the certain rustic appreciation of the nature of the instruments you're playing and how you can strange instruments are being played strange noises you make so it really sets a, a tone people are no longer just looking at the actors and performers formal properties and trying to figure out what makes them great there's a certain narrative flow that starts sucking you into the act so i don't know what you're looking for but that's that's what i'm sensing when i see those acts well i'll tell you a very good friend of mine who I learned a lot about theater from, he had a, a list like commandments in terms of how to do good theater. And he, it was applicable to any kind of live performance. I'm not going to give away exactly what all them are, which is partly in deference to him who, when I quizzed him about it recently, told me he honestly couldn't even remember what they all were. And is sure that he told me all of this in just a drunken haze, which may be accurate, which only speaks to more to the magic of it. But there's some really critical things you have to do 
for your audience to your audience to give them the experience that they should have. It was probably easier back in the day, maybe, when uh, distractions were not so omnipresent. But you have to give people a bit of a portal as they come into your venue or into the uh, the area where you're going to be doing what you're doing. You need some kind of a portal. They have to step out of the world that they're in every day all the time and come into your world. You're in control now. And one of the reasons we love the conservatory is because it's already like resonating at a nice frequency for us. So it's very easy for us to take it over. We don't do a whole lot to it when we come in. We do quite a few things to it, but they're relatively subtle. But it helps you come in and all of a sudden you're in this space that's different. We have a bit of a dress code. It's a lax dress code, but we have a bit of a dress code for both the performers and for the audience. It helps, you know, you you elevate what's going on. You give it some sense of importance. And then on top of that, we have ideas about what needs to happen on stage. And we use that when we're curating the kind of talent that hits the stage. We know we want, over the course of an evening, we want a, a few types of things to happen. And that's what you're reacting to. You, I mean, Specifically, you are definitely talking about it. And also, we hope that every audience member is reacting to these things, whatever order they come in, whatever the strong suits are of the evening. But there's acts of physical prowess. There's music. There's always some magic. It's not, it's not always a magician, though we do have magicians, but there's always some acts of magic, and by that, just something happening on stage that you're not sure how it happened or what exactly you're even seeing in terms of the technical aspects of it. So you want to just be continuing from the point that they cross over into your world. You're continuing to take them on this trip, whatever the trip may be, whatever the end result needs to be. You're taking on this trip where they just keep getting further and further away from their cell phones and from TV and from their job and from, you know, their kid that's at the babysitter, whatever, any of that stuff, you take them further and further into our, our specific rabbit hole. And then hopefully at the end, when we let you go, mm-hmm. it was a joyous experience. And you walk away uh, thinking about the crazy shit that you just saw. Yeah. And we have each season has, um, through line and each show has a theme to it first season we dedicated 13 shows and that was going to be our test run and then we got near the end and we're like there's no way we could stop we gotta keep going so now we're in season two and it has its own theme and so that helps me it's guardrails for the acts to help them uh, feel cohesive and that there's a good flow and like he said we want to have variety and uh Kevin always jokes that when you go to a burlesque show, it's kind of, it's all burlesque and mm-hmm. it's like a knock, knock joke and the punchline's always boobs. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of get, <laughs> you get boob fatigue after a while. And so I, I want to put on a show that I want to see. Um, so it's also a little selfish because it's made for me. So I, I think that if I want to see it, hopefully other people want to see it also. And uh, so, yeah, we try to have some physicality to it. We try to have music. And the first few shows were very hard because there's so much burlesque and there's so many burlesque performers. It's uh, the main pool I had to draw from. And so as we've gotten going, we have tons of performers. Uh, like Miss Spooky just reached out to me today and she's going to come and do May and July. <laughs> so they reach out to me. She comes up from Portland. We have Rasputin's Marionettes, which you probably saw at the last show, reached out and he's coming through in July. So it's just fantastic performers coming to me looking for a space in a show that lets them do something that they can't do anywhere else. And you touched on, on a question I want to ask. And when I think about the 
the phrase erotic esoterica, there are quick interpretations that people reading that phrase can take, right? Erotic can be, you know, sexualized, and there's certainly that element, but erotic in its classic sense has that physicality, has a, a sense of appreciation of the body. It's erotic in, correct me if I'm wrong, in the purest sense of that concept. And then esoterica doesn't necessarily have to mean obscure and unimportant. It is nooks and crannies of experience that you don't experience every day. And precisely it pulls you out of your everyday so that you can witness those nooks and crannies and, and shift your mindset into a, a different state. I mean, is that fair? That's my interpretation of erotic yeah, that's as a very fair. You know, we 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 labored over the name of it, and the reason that we came to the anthology of erotic esoterica is because, on its face, anybody would read it and, and gets a pretty decent vibe for what they're going to see at this show. It's it sounds a bit formal, it sounds a bit strange, and it sounds like it's going to be sexy. <laughs> But it also stands to scrutiny if you're very comfortable with the legitimate meanings of all those words. It is very much what we are attempting to accomplish over the course of however long this project lasts, which it has no – there's no end in sight because people are really enjoying it and we have ideas that will easily take us for another couple of years. And you're adding chairs to the event even more and more as, as time goes by. Yeah, yeah. I mean if it gets to the point where we need – to consider a bigger venue, it would probably come to us adding shows first because we like the intimacy of the venue. Yeah, I can't leave. But uh, we're not, we're not, that's not a real risk right. yet. I mean, it's just, it, but it is, we are learning new ways to uh, work around. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say work around, work with fire safety regulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank um, you for the clarity on that one. Yeah, well, I don't want anybody to come see the conservatory on account of my poor word choice well we did add a quarterly as well which is going to be variety it's in discussions yeah well september 9th is the first one and we're hoping to do as carlos asked him what he wanted i said what sounds good to you and he said dark vaudeville so Mm. we're looking at september 9th we have have a tentative lineup so i can't say anything yet but and it's it's not strictly related to the anthology it's going to be out of a similar universe because we're putting it together but it's not it's going to be a less straight cabaret performance it'll be a little bit more theatrical yeah and you mentioned earlier you know portland in particular how do you find folks across the region across the pacific northwest and beyond to be part of the anthology and what types of performance art appeal and fit how does that work? How do you find folks or how do they find you for that matter? It's really challenging. It was probably the biggest challenge in the beginning because, like I said, it's all burlesque here. So uh, Seattle did not have a lot of burlesque performers that understood what I was going for and the aesthetic and the vibe. So I had some great referrals. The ladies in Portland seemed to really get to get it more so than up here. Uh, I think up here there's a lot of classic aesthetic and and a lot of nerdlesque and so trying to fit nerdlesque into my show is it just does not it doesn't work so um i get a lot of referrals uh we have some uh friends that like uh mistress collie she was in new orleans for a long time and she's lived in la and she berlin in berlin and so she knows tons of performers she referred rasputin's marionettes and miss spooky two of wands that you saw at the last 
couple shows. Who are fantastic. They are fantastic. They are so happy to have a space uh, to do that kind of thing because you can't do that at very many shows. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been referring – they're teachers at Senka, and so they've been referring performers to me. Um, so then I've uh, – Leslie Rosen is another teacher at Senka, so she's also introducing me to people. Do you want to say what Sanka is in case somebody doesn't know? It's a, a school of circus arts. Uh, you can learn to do aerial, learn to juggle. You can learn all kinds of things. And uh, Two of Wands was a referral, and I couldn't be happier. So I'm asking for more and more of that. And Rasputin's Marionettes, I was elated. I turned into a little kid. I've been wanting puppets for mm-hmm. a long time. And we've had puppets in the show before. And you know, when I think about was Rasputin's Marionettes, is yeah. that the name? that? That is an illustration of what you mentioned earlier about what are those best acts, because unlike a Muppet where somebody's trying to hide and and be its own character, you actually see the person controlling the marionette right there in front of you. But it was so powerful and unique that you that that person completely disappeared from you. And you're just focusing on the marionette, even though that person is just a few inches away from the marionette. It's cool. It's nice to see. I mean, it's nice to see any kind of craft or skill where. In this case, literally, the strings are on display. You see the puppeteer. You see the tools. You see all how the tools are attached. Everything is right there for you to look at. And there's still stuff happening that mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There's a disconnect, and that is really that. That's the stuff that I love, and I'd like to see as much of it happen on stage as possible at the shows. Because when that disconnect happens, that's a short circuit in your brain that allows you to let all the other magic stuff in more easily. And mm-hmm. that's, it's oh, it's just super vital in, in our life at all. And right now people are very high strung because our world politically is very stratified. And uh, there's a lot of worry about what any given day might, might give or bring. And so if you can take a moment to recharge your, your batteries by, just reminding yourself that the world is full of magic it's full it's full of wonderful art and magic and there's lots of great people out there that are creating and who are just bringing joy and love into the world and they're out there and you can get lost you can get stuck in your bedroom or your kitchen or whatever or in your car just looking at your phone or your computer listening to the radio looking at tv and just you know the people that are behind giving you those messages understand that adrenaline is addictive and they scare – like they're into scaring you. They're into provoking you because it will cause you to pay more attention and click on things and stay on that channel or whatever. And that's good for them. It's good for their finances. And so they're, they're doing that to you on purpose. And we take it as a very serious responsibility to try to occupy whatever space we can on the – other side of that yin yang and say we're going to do everything we can to take you out of that mindset mm-hmm. and do everything we can to make you focus on good things because we can't we, it's not for us to do even if we could which we can't to take you out of it all the way i mean go march for science you know go march for for every goddamn thing that needs to be marched for right now there's a lot but uh you know take some time take some time to remember that the world is full of beautiful magic and art and wonderful people. And that's one of the things that we are very serious about trying to accomplish in that and by creating this world. And we don't ignore it. We don't ignore the outside world. It comes up often enough, but but we just don't want to dwell on it too much. We'd rather, you know, say, 
here's a puppeteer. <laughs> here's some boobs. Here's a puppeteer. <laughs> and here's a lady that's going to eat light bulbs. Yep. And we actually have an impact on people's lives more than we realize. And sometimes they tell us and it just – it's a lot and it really takes a minute to recover from that. We had a super fan that we lost recently and it really was a punch to the gut. And she would come to our shows and she loved him. And she said it was one of the only times she ever felt happy. And it was just – it was so huge that we can actually touch people like that without physically touching them. I mean sometimes we do, but in this Physically case, touch them? Physically mm-hmm. touch them. Sometimes it happens. Uh, but this case, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot. And so it's amazing knowing that what we do actually has an effect on people's lives. And yeah, in the performances I've been, it really does strike me that relationship between the performers and the audience seems much tighter than your typical overproduced cabaret. How do you establish that connection and that sort of shared sense of place? You talked about the portal opening up, mm-hmm. right? What is, what is the magic that's going on? There's a distance removed... Well, we came into the monthly after a couple of years of producing shows under the name Morbid Curiosities, which now is just the name of our production company. And that audience was cultivated from a core audience that Petit Moore had cultivated before I moved up here, which was already producing shows. Have dedicated fans. Yeah, there was already like a core audience that they were interested in what you were trying to do. Uh, I didn't know what I was trying to do exactly. I know. That's the thing. And that's, but that's good. Like, it's nice because there were, you had people that were along for the ride already. And then when Morbid Curiosities started, um, we sort of invited a different kind of attention because we were really aggressively sprawling in our attitude about what we were doing. We were definitely, we're just trying everything. We're wearing a lot of different costumes, you know, literally and figuratively. We were continuing to to cultivate a wonderful audience that was interested and excited to see what kind of decisions we were going to make all the time. And so when we were able to throw this switch and move ourselves into this new arena of, of style and presentation, the audience that we already had, they came in with a level of expectation and a level of understanding that provided us a, a very nice shortcut to to establishing the atmosphere we needed. And they came in, they came in strong. They came in dressed up nicely. Some of them wore masks because we do have a bit of a secret society vibe to what we're doing. And they, they set the stage in as much of a way as the venue itself and in a lot of ways as much as the performers themselves. So. I think initially one of the problems, uh, and it's my fault, is uh, with the dark cabaret, I thought that more was better, so bigger was better. So we outgrew the rendezvous, so we went to Annex, and then that wasn't big enough, so we went to Columbia City Theater. And then I started to realize that the bigger crowds, we were losing those core people that were with us the whole time. And so that's when I realized I wanted to do something smaller and intimate uh, for those people that came with us. And I even feel bad charging people for tickets. I'm like, I just want to give this to you for free. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're fantastic people. I feel bad making some money off of this. Um, well, it's mainly to pay for the performers. Paying the performers. We have performers coming in from other countries. Yeah, and we pay them higher than the standard uh, Seattle rates. There's like a you know minimum here per act. And so our goal is to pay people better. And if we have a good show, we pay our performers better too. They get like a little bonus if we do well. Uh, but yeah, so I realized that bigger isn't better and intimate is is where we fit well. 
So there's going to be an assumption in my in this question I'm going to pose to you, and I'm curious: a) if you think the assumption is true, uh, and b) if what counterexamples you might have if it's not true. What is it about Seattle that seems to be a good home for this type of self-expression? Is there something in the air in the Pacific Northwest specifically that makes us more amenable to moody, eroticized art, or do you object to the assumption and the question that this is even true in this region? knowing that you've been in L.A., Philadelphia, other places? Well, like I said, there isn't anything else like this in Seattle or in the surrounding areas. So if nobody else is doing it, why not? Like, why isn't it happening? And like I said, if I want to see it, then there must be a crowd that wants to see it. And clearly there's, you know, like 50 people a month that want to come and see it also. So you could easily do a podcast series answering that question. <laughs> I mean, yeah. maybe you don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I mean, that's a. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Well, and, and we talk about it all the time because we're talking about our audience more or less and so, our performers. So you think the assumption is true? There's something about the Pacific Northwest and this kind of self-expression. Uh, I mean, definitely yes. I think you could say the same for other places too. It just the answer would be different. What it is about it, but I mean, I'm tempted to draw the attention to the sort of Twin Peaks kind of attitude of the Northwest. I was thinking about it too. Yeah. Yeah, There's something, if you haven't been here before, when you first set foot in the Pacific Northwest, the deep Pacific Northwest, it's very magical and it's very unlike anywhere else in the United States. Granted, there are plenty of places in the United States that are not like any other parts of the United States. Uh, This is one of them. And in a, and in the way that it is, it's very lush. You know, it's very, very green, obviously. It's also pretty gray. And there's something about the sort of misty gray quality gives it mystery. You know, it gives it a cool, I mean, spooky kind of vibe just in the general sense. I mean, it, downtown Seattle or Pi- like around Pioneer Square and near where the, all the underground stuff is, even over by Pike Market, there's cobblestone streets. You hit there at the right time of morning or nighttime as it's it's a bit foggy. Mm-hmm. And it feels it feels very out of time. It feels very, very peculiar. And on top of that, I do think that being a fairly condensed city, it's not super densely populated, but it is condensed as opposed to, say, Los Angeles, which is densely populated, but also spread out really very sprawling. It's it's basically a strip mall of a city. Um, this is pretty condensed. And so you have some pressure applied. And then you have a climate where people are pretty much indoors for a lot of the year. I mean, we all, anyone that lives up here understands that once the sun comes out, everybody goes nuts because they've been locked up for a good seven, eight months. It's a bad time to do shows. Well, there's that. <laughs> but when you have that kind of pressure too, then I think you do have a lot of people that have a strong desire to find ways to congregate indoors and are desperately seeking an excuse and a venue, an opportunity to party in a small, tight space with as few (laughs) clothes on as possible. Mm -hmm. I think I've just been here for so long. Like I... You are born and raised in the Northwest. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And for me, you know, I'm I have this dark aesthetic and everything. And I went to New Orleans for the first time, and and I was like, I'm not a snowflake. Everybody is like this over mm-hmm. here. All the performers are like this. So it's just strange to me that there aren't more people 
like me up here. Yeah, I moved 10 years ago. I had a, a similar reaction as you did. And I think also your mood dims a little bit because of the lack of light and you become a little more insular. <laughs> and that allows you to think about every nook and cranny of your own personality and explore certain things about yourself, uh, dark or light. And, you know, this is armchair psychology and a sure. bit of meteorology <laughs> going on. And since you've been here all your life, yeah. it's just par for the course. But, yeah, I sense that, too. And, and there's the history of, of art expressions here. I think dovetails very, very well with this kind of performance. It's very community-oriented up here, too, in every regard. That's why you have so many um, wonderful, socially active uh people and movements really working to make this a very progressive environment to be in as an artist, as a human being. It's really cool. It's, I don't know that I am in a place to discuss why that might be or, or compare it to too many other places in the country, but I can compare it to places that I have come from. And as I said, I grew up in Philadelphia and Philadelphia was the, community oriented in a much more fragmented way you were you were going to find a small community to be a part of that was probably viciously physically at odds with other communities around it and i have the scars to prove it and los angeles is the opposite of community oriented i'm sure i'll take heat for this from somebody but i lived there for 12 years and it is the most self-centric place you can be and i mean it's not even i don't even necessarily mean that as a horrifically negative thing but just everybody's there to make it and everybody's there to succeed at something impossible to succeed at whatever it is and you just you can't survive there without a healthy dose of delusion every day and so you're just in a sea of crazy people that are all just believing in themselves to the point of hilarious insanity and and it, it rubs off on you and you like <laughs> you have to feel that way to stay there i mean i was delusional enough to hang around i i got there by accident i didn't intend to move there i got stuck there and then ended up staying for 12 years which is great it is how i ended up starting the peculiar pretzelman which is wonderful a good a nice bit of progress for me but but yeah, man, you have to you have to get out of bed and really believe something good is going to happen for you that day or else you're going to leave town or go on some murder-suicide spree. I'm sure there's a few in-betweens. I'm not sure that that's a hard line <laughs> in the sand, but uh, no, I'm sure. it was that's for it. me. It's definitely it. And then I yeah. wooed you up here. That's true. So I'm going to do a pause. Do you need to go to a restroom or anything? I have. Probably maybe 20, 25 more minutes of questions cool. no just worries. to make sure everybody's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's right. fine. Uh, I do want to mention, because you're talking about Pioneer Square. and Oh, so you want to do this like now so he has to edit around it? So it's, <laughs> so it's now I'm just kidding. It's like, it's like I'm going to break it. Like, hold on. Hold on. Cut that part out, and then I'm going to say this really interesting thing. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well fine, now. I'll wait. I'll wait. No, you might as well now. I made a fuss about it. Well. So in your research, did you figure out where we got married? No. We got married at Spooked in Seattle on Halloween. You could have let that hang, too. <laughs> let him go to the bathroom. Yeah, go to the bathroom. Okay. I'm going to go to the bathroom.
was just thinking of because you're talking about Eric likes to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. Um, it was paused. It's too bad. Mm-hmm. Damn. It's too bad for you. Yeah. You would have had so many treasures. <laughs> now you know for now next know. time when you take a break, leave it rolling because mm-hmm. you don't know what weird shit people will say. Damn it. <laughs> Maybe I'll try to do it again, but the moment's lost. Do you consider what you do part of a long tradition of happenings? Given what you've said so far, you, you do seem conscious of that history. It stretches from the salons of the 1800s to now. So how aware and how much influence is there when you think about the literary salons in the 1800s, Berlin Cabaret from the Weimar era in the 20s and 30s, and burlesque from the 50s? Is it? Are you conscious of it? And if you are... Do you feel an anxiety of influence, trying to make something different? What's your relationship to that long history of this type of performance? I mean, we're definitely very aware of it in all the all the things that we we do as a as a producing team, as a just as artists in general. Like we're super aware of that stuff, and it comes up a lot when we're trying to decide what to do. I'd be hard pressed to even consider how you would draw a line. Like that would connect them, that would end with us, you know, or or not end, but would that we would be at the tail end of of it in a progress. I don't know if I think of it that way. I mean, I guess at some point, certainly when we're gone, we'll be some tiny speck, some microscopic speck on that line. For us, it's just that we live inside of a, a library that the world's offered us of things to study and to to learn from and we try to be some distillation of the things that speak to us the most and again as petit moore has said a couple times we're just trying to do what we think is interesting and what we think is relevant and necessary well and we're fortunate enough to be in this the northwest where performing arts are thriving right now there's a whole revival starting around early 2000s and um Burlesque is huge. I think we have more burlesque performers in Seattle than any other city in the United States. There's there's a list, Red Hot Annie's list of burlesque performers, and Seattle is just massive. So we have that. And I think being around all that live performance, you see it and you're like, oh, I could do that. And then we'll go to shows and we go, okay, what can we do better? And so everything we draw from, like all the art we draw from, they're like, how can we take that, shape it to fit our needs and do better? And who are the people that attend the anthology? Are there regulars that you've gotten to know? You mentioned Weirdos. one yeah, <laughs> recently. <laughs> we do. We have a lot of regulars. Uh, we have three or four people that have been to every single one so far. So that would be, what is that, 15 shows? No, 14 shows. And uh, we have a few that have been to most of the shows. So we have a lot of regulars. They're great. And um, as I said, we have memberships available. Um, It happens on a full moon. You know, if we feel generous, sometimes we'll hand them out to uh, people we think make good members and good regulars. And we take care of them. And so they keep coming back. And what's in store for the future? How do you keep a series such as the anthology fresh and evolving over time? And are there other projects you're dreaming up? You kind of mentioned maybe there'll be a larger event peppered in with the anthology? What's the future? What's the evolution? How do you keep it fresh? So the different seasons help us keep it unique and different, and they each have a a different vibe and a different feel. Um, I try to push different um, 
aspects of performance to each one. So for the first season, it was kind of it's kind of a little more burlesque heavy. And this uh, second season, I'm trying to really lay off the burlesque. It's hard. Like I said, there's so many performers here more acro more magicians stuff like that and uh the third season's in the works right now i'm already starting to book it i have a lot of uh, traveling performers coming through which helps keep it fresh and new for me i want to see something i've never seen before i want to see different performers so i think that if it's new and fresh for me then it's going to be something like that for the audience as well i've seen a lot of shows I get really excited about puppets and things like that. So I assume that our regulars are going to get excited to see puppets and, and, you know, people doing weird things on chairs. Mm -hmm. If I like it, somebody else can like it too. So tell people who are listening, what is coming up in the next, you know, month or two, where to, what, what should they pay attention to? Where should they go to find more information and, and pursue all this? So, uh, April 28th is, our next show. And we have um, Rocket coming from Portland. She's a burlesque performer. We have uh, Indigo Sky, who is a hula hoop artist, also coming from Portland. We have uh, Gail Force. She is from Seattle, but she's been traveling. So I don't know where to say she's from. She's she nomad does. now. She's nomad. She does stilts and stilt burlesque. Uh, she can do the splits and stilts. It's She's a pilot. Oh, she's also a pilot. Yes. She doesn't do that at the show, though. No, that'd be really hard. <laughs> We're working on it. We're trying. Uh, Kevin will be hosting. And then um, Jay Peace is juggling. And we have Sage doing magic. He is fantastic. I highly recommend him. Next month. And like I said, uh, each show has its own theme. And so I welcome people to try and guess what they are. Uh, So for May, we have uh, hopefully Ezra. Ezra's in town uh, doing a circus I'm not going to mention. And so I snatched him up as fast as humanly possible. Wanda Bones coming from Portland. Uh, Reggie, I can't promote. I can't pronounce her last name. She's coming from L.A. She is Judith's uh, partner with the Hoot Nanny. Oh, she's from Philly. Is she? Right? Reggie, Reggie Bugmuncher? Yes, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Thank she's you. from Philly. She just moved to LA, I think. She's doing our May show. Oh, and I just Oh, cool. I just added um, Surprise. Miss Spooky and uh Weedini, the magician, is doing oh, that yeah, show yeah. also. And then I'm very excited about uh June as well. We have um there's gonna be a lot of animals. There's gonna be puppies in the June show and oh, we have wait, a snake. What? Yeah. <laughs> there's puppies and For a snake. For the audience? No, well, no. I'll see what I can do. If Every- the audience behaves. <laughs> Everybody gets a puppy. Holy crap. That sounds awful. <laughs> but there's a real snake, too, so I'm just, I hope. I'm not allergic to snakes. No. <laughs> the snake gets too close to the puppy. It might be an issue. It's concerning. Or it's the act. It could be. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to get, like, someone, someone called on us. <laughs> very upset. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are the next uh, upcoming shows. There, There's a lot of variety, which is my favorite. And I, I like to sit over by the stage and watch. In case I didn't make it totally clear, I'll go ahead and address the fact that, as I said, we do put a lot of uh, preparation into into the shows. Um, and we discuss things ad nauseum to really figure out where we're at with all the minutia of how the show operates. And as a result, there's a pretty neat distinction between our responsibilities with the shows. And La Petite Mort curates the talent pretty exclusively Mm -hmm. we talk about the kind of people that we like and who we want to have come back and what kind of performances we like and we certainly talk about uh how shows went afterwards and discuss who we definitely want to have back soon and who we are not necessarily sure we want to have back not that that has ever happened actually i don't think that has ever happened okay (laughs) let's move on i was was (laughs) late but uh just kidding and then yeah and then it's my responsibility to handle a lot of how the show runs from the you know front of house 
sort of perspective as the host and as the uh, musical director. Mm-hmm. And um, our volunteers are fantastic, too. They are wonderful. It's another thing I coordinate. We have two to three people every month come and volunteer. They get to see the show. And then um, they and we have a team. Like We, have, we team. have a pool of people that are always hyped to, to come help out. And yes. they're great. They, and they get super dressed up. <laughs> if you ever yeah, want to figure out As do many of our is. audience. We, yes. we have a, ver- a fairly formal... It's a loose dress code. If you show up in shorts, we'll let you in, but you will feel a little out of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to step up my game. Well, so we forgive you. Thank you. So where what is the source of truth online where people can go and look at all of these listings? Is it uh, glitterandgore.com where they should go? Glitterandgore.com is where you can go, and we have something new coming up soon that I am not ready to unveil yet. The mm-hmm. anthology is on Twitter too, right? It's me. Oh, it's just you? It's on uh, Instagram. Okay. But it's like all weird and obscure and secretive on Instagram. It's just lots of weird pictures. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. But if you were yeah. to Google Anthology of Erotica Esoterica, it'll take you to Glitter. You'll and gore. certainly find many places that will have this information. Yeah. Yeah. There is actually an anthology of erotica mm. and an anthology of esoterica. So you got to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. You oh. might find a little porn. Interesting rabbit holes, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Do some homework. <laughs> One more question. You Half a question. Are sure eighty years old? What are you doing at that age? Wait. So what was it? You are eighty years old. What are you doing at that age? Oh my god, a decomposing. I assume. <laughs> so things haven't. Yeah, this, this has been a rough ride. I don't know. If I'm around though, we'll still be. We'll still be. We'll still be holding hands and figuring out what to do. What kind of weird art to make? Yeah, I don't um, think I'll be stripping anymore. That's for sure. Hey, man. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe I'll hold up. Technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just wh- how, who will be paying attention that isn't me <laughs> is what the issue is. It'll be just for you. Uh, but yeah, we'll, I mean. I'm sure we'll be making She probably music. won't let me die anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no. we'll, be, we'll be around. We'll be around doing something and it'll be weird. She'll keep you in one form or another. It'll be weird and it'll mm-hmm. be dark. I'll keep your skull. And it'll be, uh, you can, that's fine. <laughs> Angela. Just shaping as it is. <laughs> La Petite Mort and Monsieur Kevin Incroyable, thank you for gracing us with your presence and thoughts. And may you continue sprinkling us with glitter and spraying us with gore. Gross. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. Along with this episode, you will find a page on our site where you can learn more about the Anthology of Erotic Esoterica, more about La Petite Mort and Kevin Incroyable, and a sprinkle of relevant links letting you jump down into rabbit holes. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. And as always, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. Take your pick. And leading us out of this episode, we're going to play from the peculiar pretzelman, Rabbit Foot Blues. Until the next time, this must be the place. Judas, he can keep his kiss And all the lower lies that dripped from his lips mm-hmm.
about is likely ever change my ways. Let's go.